1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, 20 years after a US led war and occupation, the Taliban control Afghanistan once again leaving the Afghan people to face an uncertain future, particularly women and girls. We'll talk about what Taliban rule may mean for women and what role the U.S. should play in their futures, as well as in the lives of Afghans forced to flee their homeland. Tens of thousands of refugees are eligible to come to the U.S. But Biden's resettlement plans are already facing political backlash. We look at all of it next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. has completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan after two decades of war and occupation with a chaotic departure that cost the lives of Afghans and U.S. service members. As night falls now in Afghanistan, we'll look at what happened today as well as the uncertain future under Taliban rule, especially for women and girls. Joining me first with the latest developments is Frank Gardner, security correspondent for the BBC. Frank Gardner, appreciate you being with us. Good morning. So as I mentioned, it's the end of the first day of Taliban control and the Kabul airport of course has been the focus of activity, attention, uh, tragedy in this withdrawal. What happened there today, Frank?
3: Well, in a word, the Taliban took over. So the last US flight, uh, military flight took off from there, the end of the mission as uh, as it's been announced. That ends the entire 20-year involvement of the U.S. militarily in Afghanistan, at least on the ground. So Taliban senior leadership were very quick to move into the airport, what President Biden refers to as HKIA, that stands for Hamid Karzai International Airport, and they've been posing for photographs and proclaiming victory. Their detractors have said this isn't a Taliban victory. The U.S. simply walked away from it. It did a deal last year with the Taliban in hotels in Qatar, Uh, on the understanding that if uh, the U.S. agreed to pull out, then the Taliban wouldn't attack them. And sure enough, for the last 18 months, up until this airport operation, there wasn't a single U.S. casualty in Afghanistan. Um, But, of course, the bomb went off last Thursday, launched by ISIS, ISIL, uh, that killed a very large number of people. So today, life has been slowly returning or kind of returning to normality on the streets of Kabul, some of the main banks are open with big queues outside. People aren't allowed to withdraw more than $200 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got to try and live on that. Uh,
1: before I get into a little bit more of of what Taliban rule will look like, which you were alluding to at the very end there, I do want to ask you, Frank, if you know anything about revelations that the Taliban escorted some Americans to gates at Kabul airport and otherwise facilitated their departure as part of a secret agreement with the U.S.?
3: Well, it's perfectly possible. I don't know the exact details on that, but it was in the Taliban's interest to see what they call um, invading apostate forces depart the country as soon as possible. So they had a vested interest in encouraging Americans to leave as quickly as they could. The people who they want to get their hands on despite their assurances are the, the the Afghan citizens who spied for the Americans and for NATO forces. They consider these people to be traitors. They want that they'd like to get hold of them. Those are the people who, if they weren't able to get out on U.S. and allied flights, are now gone into hiding, living in fear for their lives.
1: U.S. officials did acknowledge that they were not able to get everyone out. So what efforts will be needed? diplomatic or otherwise, to evacuate those remaining who want to leave, who are in
3: hiding? Well, the deal that major Western countries are putting on the table to the Taliban is is this. If you want international global recognition, if you want the unfreezing of funds, if you want normal trade ties with the developed world, then you have to fulfill a number of conditions that Afghanistan must not be, for example, a uh, a haven for international terrorists. You must um, guarantee the human rights of women and girls. And you must allow f- safe passage for all those Afghans who want to get out of the country. Now, the Taliban have ostensibly agreed to all of that, at least the leadership have. But the problem is that some of the lower down commanders and kind of hot headed militants who, remember, spent the last few years out in the bush fighting not just the Afghan government, but Um, hiding from US airstrikes and others, some of those people are not necessarily gonna follow those orders.
1: Is it possible to measure the degree of support that Taliban have? Do you expect to see resistance or are what you were just describing more likely?
3: I think the last thing Afghanistan needs now is another 20 years of civil war. So I think we are where we are. The Taliban are in control of 95% plus of the country the one pocket of resistance is a valley to the northeast of Kabul called the Panjshir Valley. It means uh, five lions. And that's always been a a kind of redoubt of resistance to them. So during the last time they ruled from 96 to 2001, it's where the Mujahideen hid out. And, excuse me, um, it's, it's the last sort of pocket of resistance to them. And they don't have a lot of weapons. They have um, they number maybe a maximum of 15,000 people. Remember that the Taliban have inherited a massive armory, much of it donated by the US to the Afghan National Security Forces during the summer in a bid to prop them up. And so the Taliban are now driving around in Humvees. They've got Black Hawk helicopters, Cessnas, thousands and thousands of small arms, uh, M4s, M16s, and millions of rounds of ammunition. So they are a very powerful force in charge of the country.
1: And can you give us a little bit more of a sense of what you mean by that? What return to power means? What shape it will take with the Taliban in control? Its leaders have said they want peace and adherence to Islamic law. But what are you expecting?
3: Well, to be perfectly honest, I don't think the Taliban have even worked it out amongst themselves yet. Um, they're having to balance um, conflict I mean there is a spectrum of opinion within the Taliban they're not a monolithic organization so there are some extreme elements who frankly want to turn it back to the way it was in the 1990s which some would consider is back to the dark ages with uh, extreme punishments taking place in football stadiums, stadiums stadiums amputations of right hand and left ankle for theft stoning of women for adultery not allowing women to work, insisting that they are accompanied everywhere by a male guardian, a mahram, as it's called. Uh, I mean, really horrendous stuff. There are others who are more pragmatic, particularly some of those who spent the last two years in hotels in Doha, living quite a comfortable life, intermingling with the West, who have been negotiating with the West and understand that if they go back to that, then they are going to be a pariah state. The last time they were in power, 20 years ago, only three countries recognize them, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the UAE. This time, they want to be a part of the world community. At least they say they do. So they know they've got to at least present the front of house in quite a respectable way, and they will be monitored. I think one of the biggest challenges is going to be getting food and aid to people because Afghanistan has been propped up by a huge amount of international aid. How do you get all of that money and aid to the ordinary Afghan people now without it simply going into the hands of the Taliban and possibly getting siphoned off by al-Qaeda or others.
1: And I think, as I understand it, the U.S., at least in its most recent conversations with media officials, have said that they will not go directly through the Taliban, but through humanitarian organizations or other international organizations for such things. But yes, it is a big question in terms of the U.S.'s plans to provide humanitarian as- Humanitarian assistance and how best to go about doing that. Well, Frank Gardner, thank you so much for giving us a sense of the situation on the ground. Really appreciate it.
0: You're
3: very welcome. Have a good day.
1: Frank Gardner, security correspondent for the BBC. We turn now to looking at the situation for women and girls in the country. And as Frank described, the last time the Taliban held power two decades ago, women described how they were unable to work or leave their homes without a male relative, they were not allowed to attend school and those who defied the rules were punished, sometimes brutally and and publicly. With this return to Taliban control, we look now at how things are immediately playing out. And joining me is Rina Amiri, Independent Policy and Mediation Advisor and Senior Fellow at NYU Center for International Cooperation, also a Senior Fellow at NYU Center for Global Affairs. Rina Amiri, really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much for having me. I understand you've been speaking with women in Afghanistan, Tell us what you're hearing from them with U.S. troops now no longer there. Yeah, it's been
4: uh, a really, honestly, very heartbreaking conversations. Uh, a lot of the people that I've been engaging are human rights activists, women activists, lawyers, judges, journalists. And a lot, a number of these people, particularly um, leaders in that community, had met with the Taliban. They'd met with them in Doha. They had met with them in Oslo. And um, so they had; they knew what was coming. Uh, you know, the the peace agreement under the Trump administration made it very clear that that, that the Taliban were going to be uh, a force to contend with. And so some of them walked away with just a, a, an element of hope that that there would, in fact, be a rehabilitated Taliban um, and that they their rights wouldn't be stripped away. Um, but what I Heard, I mean, throughout the country, because I was actually not just talking to women in Kabul. I was, I engaged in research project, um, which uh, uh, where I literally was talking to women in every part of the country, hmm. and I was witnessing, you know, through these conversations, what was happening as the Taliban took over, and and there was something. What was most troubling is, is what it was systematic that as the Taliban would take over. These district centers these provinces, um, one of the first things that they did is they would go to these uh, women leaders houses and their offices, and they would have their names, and they would say, we know what you have been working on, we know what you do, and they it was just. they would uh, interrogate them. They would go through their material. Uh, and these and that left, and it was just not just women, but journalists and others. And that left them really terrified. The Taliban didn't even have to do much. They didn't have to carry out acts of violence. But they were creating a very, um, a, a culture of, of intimidation and fear. And for many of them, it was so triggering because it, they went back to what had happened in the 1990s and just Terror struck them. And I just would have all of these. And, you know, I was working on a research project. So my uh, intent was to, to talk about the subject of the research, which was creating inclusive ceasefire processes. But they they wanted to talk about what was happening to them. And then we might our research team said we have to create space for this because these people are going through just terror and it was just this consistent messaging that, uh, in terms of what was happening. And then when it happened in Kabul, I had a number of friends where literally it was less than 24 hours after they took over that they came to their houses and did the same thing. And I received calls from friends who are the strongest, most resilient women that I know. And some of them were just terror stricken and others were stoic and saying, well, this i i may not survive this just
1: uh yeah Let's, we're talking uh, about the uh, uncertain future for women and girls in afghanistan with rena amiri we'll have more with rena amiri after the break and you our listeners can join us with your concerns or questions about the situation for women and girls as well stay with us this is forum i'm mina kim
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
1: We're talking about what Taliban rule may mean for women and girls with Rena Amiri, Independent Policy and Mediation Advisor and Senior Fellow at NYU's Center for International Cooperation. You, our listeners, are invited to join us with your questions or concerns about the situation for women in Afghanistan is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Also with us right now is Malia Chishti, Lecturer and Research Associate at the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts at the University of Chicago. Malia Chishti, glad to have you on with us as well. Thank you, Mina. It's a pleasure to be on your program. One of the things that uh, Rena and Mary alluded to before the break was that the Taliban was saying that, uh, well, most recently, some of its spokespeople were saying that there will be no violence against women, that women could participate in society, quote, within the bounds of Islamic law. And I was curious, Malia Chishti, how you react to and interpret that.
5: It's a very elusive uh, framework that they're referring to the framework of uh, Islamic law. If it's uh, akin to the one that they practiced during 1996 and 2001, then it's frightening because uh, those were the draconian laws that we were made aware of internationally. I'm hoping, of course, as many women activists are around the world, that the Taliban in its effort to position a more moderate image to the international community for the reasons that Frank had mentioned earlier, uh, the need to establish trading relations, the need for international legitimacy, that they would allow for um, a much more um, broader and inclusive uh, women's rights agenda. And so we really don't know when we'll know is when we'll actually see them doing the work that needs to be done, proposing a new constitution, what laws they'll be amending, what laws they'll be repealing uh, to keep an eye out for the Article 22, which guarantees men and women have equal rights and duties before the law. So it's actually when the Taliban start the sort of machinery of the state and draft their new laws and amend and repeal the old laws, we'll have a good idea of what their brand of Islamic law means.
1: Reena Amir, can you give us a sense of the scope of some of the freedoms that some women realized during the absence of Taliban control, we had been hearing about women entering the workforce in in record numbers, becoming civil servants, journalists, even sports figures and entertainers. Can you talk about these gains and, and how and where they were realized the most?
4: I mean, absolutely, and and I just want to note that I, I very much agree with with what Malija noted that you know there there's a lot of fear and concern, but many are hoping that. The, the Taliban position will only become clear once once they actually govern. And, and so there's this still this element of hope that, that it, it may be different. Um, in terms of where the rights are, I, I uh, what I want to remind people is that the situation for women in Afghanistan in many respects, in terms of the rights um accorded to them both on paper and um and 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 how it was uh, applied at least in um in, in more populated populated areas was not so different from any part of the Muslim world where there's there's progressivism allowed. And certainly even uh, like what we have here that Women were allowed. Uh, women were part of the workforce um, throughout uh, uh, the, the country, even in more traditional areas. There were huge advances in education. You know, when uh, in two thousand one, there there wasn't a single girl in school, and we had girls in uh, primary and secondary education. We had uh, girls in universities and, um, and 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 every sector. Women as uh, and and the most senior positions of government. Uh, the 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 U.S., uh, the ambassador to the U.S. and the U.N. are, are both women, women or were women, sorry. And, uh, and so there was just this freedom and this possibility and this hope and this assumption that their future was their own. That is the most fundamental element that's been stripped away from them. They And it literally happened overnight. These women went from being able to uh, to engage, to speak publicly, to fight for their rights um, to being silenced literally within, uh, within a day uh, in many cases. I know that that was the case in Kabul. But uh, So that, I think, is the most uh, surreal element for them, that, that, that their lives were radically uh, disrupted overnight.
1: You've also, though, uh, noted in many ways just now that the West likes to think that it brought democracy and human rights to, to Afghanistan and equality for women, But it really is a system and an effort that has gone back much earlier than that. And and I'm curious why it's so important to note that. In that, do you see a path um, of hope?
4: Yes, thank you very much for asking that question. Yes, the West does assume that it brought all of this progress, women's rights, social gains, uh, uh, journalism, and free media, democracy into Afghanistan, but this uh, th- th- throughout afghan history there has been this tension before between the reformist elements and the more conservative and traditional elements there is a fight that has gone on for a long time over the soul of afghanistan and and what afghanistan is and it started well before the the world could even locate afghanistan on the map it, it, it goes back at least to the 1920s when and uh, when you had a reformist king who uh weighted a central feature of his policy to advance women's rights because he recognized that that was really critical to progress in Afghanistan as a whole um, and there there was a backlash at that point it was more about his economic policies but it was dressed as uh, opposition to women's rights but the kings of Afghanistan the king of Afghanistan later adopted a, a gradualist approach bringing in Islamic scholars uh, to push uh, to put women's rights uh, as, a, as, a, as an important feature of, of his policies, and that continued into the, uh, well into the 1970s, and was it's seen as a really endemic part of Afghan culture. So, when 2000, 2001, for many people, when the U, the West, and the international community came in, it it for them it was that the rupture there there had been a rupture, and now they were able to go back to the progress that had been there before the soviet invasion before the civil war before the draconian measures of the taliban before the radicalization of war and and afghanistan has its own heroes in all of this in terms of women activists women leaders champions um the one thing that is different in terms of what the what happened in the last two decades, which is really fundamental, is before you had a top-down process in terms mm-hmm. of ad- advocating for women's rights and advancing women's rights. And the last two decades, a grassroots movement um, uh, came about. Throughout Afghanistan, where it was women leaders themselves who are coming together as coalitions who were demanding women's rights. They were the ones who pushed for the 25% quota successfully in the constitution and achieved the highest percentage of uh, women in parliament in the entire region. It is they who, and and every Afghan um, civil society leader would say, our most effective advocates and activists right now, our greatest champions for for democracy, for freedom, it it is in the women's movement. Um, And that's where my hope is, is that that, that impulse for reform and change, democracy and rights is essential to the fabric of Afghanistan. And regardless of what the West does, the the seeds are there. That impulse is there. That hunger is there. And if anything, it's it, now it's it's become something that the that the population as a whole has internalized as its
1: own. Malia do you see this impulse as something that can really be um, controlled by the women who are fighting for their rights across the board? I guess the reason that I ask is because. I know you have thought a lot about how the prescription for women's equality, in some senses, is very Western or has been very Western and has left out some Afghan women. In a recent piece you write, particularly women who hold strong ties to their faith, families and local communities, despite their recognition of how deeply patriarchy and oppression runs in their culture. And so do you see this impulse as being inclusive and very much guided by something that is truly rooted in Afghan culture? Sure. Well, I
5: certainly echo Rina's remarks that there's a strong history of very active uh, women working in the grassroots social movements working horizontally. So non-formal, informal networks of women that survived during the Taliban under the radar of the Taliban. They had schools and clinics and educated themselves. And so what we see is likely what we'll see is this network will be revamped in some ways and the kind of networks that would be supported would be intergenerational and um, drawing on men and women working together and across the existing cleavages of rural and urban-based women. So my research points to the the question of where do 80% of Afghan women reside? And they live in the rural countryside where the reach of the central state is weak or it's even non-existent. And so the future for them is likely going to be revamping the the modalities that they used under the Taliban. And we're hoping that they they obviously will regroup, strategize, pull resources together. And again, uh, I I believe we'll see a movement built um, across the rural-urban divide on the politics of resilience, resistance, survival, and reform.
1: Well, let me go to caller Jan in South San Francisco. Hi, Jan.
2: Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. Um, the question that I have is I've been hearing a lot in uh, the media about, uh, again, you know, uh, you know, the concern over women's rights in Afghanistan, as everybody should be, you know, worried about that and concerned about it. But my question is, I've heard a lot of uh, lawmakers uh, stress that point. And I think that maybe they're doing it for nefarious purposes. For, for example, I think maybe uh, they were using that, uh, you know, veil of uh, protecting women's rights as maybe an excuse to prolong the involvement in Afghanistan. And maybe I suspect that might be the case, because uh, if the American government was truly concerned about uh, women's rights, then the big question is why do we still consider uh, Saudi Arabia an ally when uh, they have a horrific uh, mm. human rights record, and particularly against women? So, again, I think maybe the big question is, Are were American lawmakers truly genuine in their concern for um, women's rights in Afghanistan, or were they using that as an excuse to uh, try and prolong our involvement um, in that uh, conflict? Again, you know, I, I, I me personally, yes. I really do feel sorry about, uh, you know, the suffering that the Afghan women are experiencing. But, uh, yeah, just curious what the panel thinks about that. Um, Jan, yes, thanks.
1: And what— you're raising, Jan, is something that others have raised, Rena and Mary, that the U.S. mission to help women became a pretext for continued involvement in Afghanistan. And what is the U.S.'s genuine and continued campaign here with regard to uh, ensuring women's rights?
4: Um, certainly the issue of uh, women's rights, Afghan women's rights, and, and elsewhere, quite frankly, has been ins- instrumentalized politically. The 2001 invasion, you know, there was this mobilization that the US is going to go and protect and defend women's rights, despite the fact that during the period of the Taliban regime, where there was a, a great deal of brutality against women, um, no one paid attention to that. Um, so um, so absolutely, it's something to be concerned about. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't Paint all policies, the, the lawmakers in one stroke. I think there are there are certainly those that are going to use uh, use this issue in order to um, uh, to. Instill some some sense of uh, moral um, uh, conviction behind you know what they 're advocating for on, on a military front, but there are also those that have engaged these women for the last twenty years who recognize that these women are really essential forces of moderation, so the u s will always have an interest in the stability of uh, the Afghanistan in the region and globally for for many different reasons. It should, from the terrorism front, to from the fact that there's four, uh, you know, four, four nuclear weapons there. So you need an Afghanistan that's stable. The way to get to that stability is not through these uh, over-the-horizon uh, counterterrorism strategies, but to actually empower um, the, uh, the, the, the moderating forces, the forces of inclusivity. That is a long-term strategy that should be applied so that's just from a street. i'm not even talking about the moral imperative to help all of these people that have been at the front lines uh, fighting for democracy w- and rights but also just even from a strategic and security perspective the way to get there is not through these just quick fixes it is by empowering we we the data is there where you have women um, and, and just broader inclusivity and, and governments, the, the, they, they be, in effect, become forces of moderation against extremism and terrorism.
1: Well, Todd writes, we keep hearing that women and girls are at risk of losing their rights. Are there any Afghan men who will stand with them? Why don't we hear about Afghan men resisting draconian Taliban rule? Malia Chishti?
5: Indeed, there are um, many men, allies, relatives. Um, The whole network of Afghan women activism relied on male allies, mostly in rural areas. It relied on male relatives directly. But the resistance movement during the Taliban from the 1996-2001 period required men Um, supporting women and this collaborative sort of solidarity that forged and it meant working with men to rework and tweak traditional patriarchal structures and to essentially move either um, uh, move supplies along or further support um, women's programming during that time and Again, we see many men engaged in local women's organizations, supporting women's organizations and supporting women's rights. But I would like to, to speak um, a little broadly, Mina, if it's possible, to, to say that women's rights are really hard to untangle from the broader critique of international aid operations. International aid in Afghanistan has a very dismal record of failure. And so for me, it's really hard to see gender reforms um, that, have, that, are, that haven't suffered the same kind of critiques that international operations have failed in the country. Bad planning, donor-driven priorities, lack of proper consultation with Afghan women, high rates of duplication, inefficiency, lack of coordination. There has been a tremendous failure on part of the U.S. government and the international community when it comes to the billions of dollars of money spent in Afghanistan. And we see that with the CIGAR reports, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, where, to be be very simple, in, in my understanding of those reports, were contradictory U.S. policies of building a state, supporting that state, and simultaneously tearing it down in essence Mm -hmm. creating and sustaining a weak state the Washington Post their Afghanistan papers also revealed disturbing realities of the level of U.S. institutional ambivalence the lack of coordination no international uh, interagency cooperation within the Afghan government so the waste spending of tax dollars is alarming and women's rights and gender reforms and and aid programs targeting women have fallen within that purview
1: the uncertain future for women and girls in afghanistan with melia chishti and Rina amiri you're listening to forum i'm mina kim stay with us mm-hmm. You're listening to Forum My Mina Kim. We're gauging what women and girls face in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. And Curtis writes The Taliban made promises in the 90s, theocracies don't change. It will be far worse for women and girls in Afghanistan. Rina Amiri, I want to ask you before I know you need to leave us Are you worried the way that Curtis is more than you are hopeful or optimistic? And if so, what worries you most?
4: I, I am deeply worried, but I want to be optimistic because, quite frankly, we don't have a choice right now. We have the Taliban are in control. And so my hope is that we, we uh, it'll be absolutely key to get also the support of the region and to use our leverage as effectively as as possible in order to protect the rights of women. We cannot do what we have to date, which is um, be largely rhetorical in terms of our support. I think that's been the case for the last two years, and even that has been lacking. In order to protect women's rights, we have to really think very strategically um, and all the ways that, uh, that uh, you know, that your speakers have noted um, as to what, what would be required of, one, recognizing w- where the power is, what where the leverage is, and using them as assets in order to, to protect and support Afghan women.
1: Well, Malia Chishti, there was a February U.S. Special Inspector General report that said that overall its efforts to promote gender equity... The results were mixed. And one of the things that it noted was that uh, the U.S. needed to develop a more nuanced understanding of gender roles and relations in the Afghan cultural context. And I guess, are you hopeful that even without the U.S. presence there, that that will happen? Certainly, I
5: mean, I share uh, Rina's sentiments as well, very optimistic, um, but very cautious. And it's a wait and see moment for for many of us and certainly uh, a very fearful moment of uncertainty and a precarious situation for Afghans, Afghan women specifically. I think, I mean, I think that for the conditions of, uh, that need to happen right now, and I want to pivot a bit here, is to look at uh, the kinds of opportunities that perhaps exist right now for Afghan women. And that would be what's happening and what could happen in the spaces that they carve at the local level. And given the fact that the Taliban are not going anywhere, these are spaces of dialogue and negotiations that have to happen. And Afghan women are likely um, going to have to recast and reframe women's rights within a normative Islamic framework. And this Is possible and arguably should be the path forward because nothing in Afghanistan in terms of women's rights has ever really happened without some grounding within existing cultural religious frameworks to gain wider legitimacy. Um, I know from my own work um, promoting CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which was ratified by Afghanistan, the 200 Afghan women activists that I worked on were very eager and happy to push CEDAW's agenda forward in Afghanistan, but it had to be compliant with Sharia. They needed to have of, open conversations, critical conversations amongst a cross section of Afghan women who are secular, who are Marxists, who are liberal feminists, who are traditional Orthodox Muslims. The whole spectrum of, of, of plural voices among Afghan women activism still recognized that a cultural religious framing of rights had to be negotiated. It had to be discussed. <laughs> And I'm hopeful that that very critical conversation continues and that the Taliban in government is able to to open those pathways for discussions. Because as it is right now, and it has been for the past 20 years, Afghan women's rights were hinged on a very hyper-masculine, hyper-militarized, liberal public space. So that's to say that there was just uh, this framework of a long-term presence of foreign troops um, and a very costly expenditure uh, of security that was required to facilitate women enjoying basic liberal rights and freedoms. And that's really not sustainable. Um, so these new so, pathways for women's organizing is, is what I'm
1: really looking Um, with keen interest. Yes, and for lessons, like you say, learned. Malia Chishti, lecturer and research associate at the University of Chicago, and Rena Amiri, independent policy and mediation advisor and senior fellow at NYU Center for International Cooperation. So glad to have you both with us, and thank you. We're going to turn now to look at the situation for afghans who have fled and the us's obligation to them more than two dozen members of california's congressional delegation led by representatives eric swalwell adam schiff and ted Lu, have signed on to a letter telling president biden that the state is ready and eager to accept afghan refugees who quote saved american lives aiding the u.s military and diplomatic efforts and the letter noted governor gavin newsom's declaration of california as a state of refuge Joining me now to talk about this is Anita Kumar, a White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Anita, thanks so much for joining us.
7: Sure. Thanks for having me back.
1: Can you just quickly give us a sense of what the resettlement process in the U.S. has been? I understand that there are military bases set up in Virginia, New Jersey, Texas, and Wisconsin as processing centers. What What's happening?
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, the Pentagon is opening up uh, more military bases. So... Uh, when these uh, Afghans come into the United States, they're immediately sent to one of these military bases, and they—we uh, understand that they stay there sort of up to 30 days. Uh, the people that I've talked to say it's much, much shorter period of time. You know, maybe one week or just a matter of days. And what happens there is they're making sure all their paperwork is okay uh, Paperwork paperwork get—you know—basically resettled in the United States that they have the right. Uh,
1: immigrant status that need. Um, I'm so sorry, Anita Kumar. Actually, your connection is going in and out of touch. Let's try to get that stabilized. And while we do, let me remind our listeners that we are taking stock of the situation among Afghans left behind, but also now at this point, Afghans who have fled to see what is the U.S. obligation with regard to that and what are the U.S. efforts related to that as well. We're talking with Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. And you, our listeners, of course, can join the conversation with your questions or comments at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Anita Kumar, were we able to stabilize your line there? I hope so, can you hear me better now? A little bit, um, (laughs) but you were just talking about the vetting process, essentially. And I understand that the Biden administration has been engaging with governors and other state leaders to really educate them on the vetting process. Why is that so important? Yeah, the vetting process actually happens before they
7: come to the United States. So that process happens before they are on U.S. soil. Um, And it's so important because if you'll remember, six years ago, the united states was getting a lot of syrian refugees there were a lot of governors any Republican, most Republican, with some local officials who said look we don't want these syrian refugees in our local district or our state and there was a lot of pushback to the obama administration so the biden administration is trying to make sure that doesn't happen this time around
1: i see yes <laughs> they are definitely trying to make sure that doesn't happen this time around and we'll talk more about that in a second i do think we Need to try you on a different line again. So let's have you hang on for that. Uh, in the meantime, let me go to uh, Hussein in San Francisco. Hi, Hussein. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for taking my call. You know, we went there for a different reason and changed the game and in, in the middle of the change the rules of the game in the middle of the game. Now that we were leaving, we paved the way for the Taliban to come. They, they didn't have that kind of power to fight against the United States. That's a joke, anybody that believes that. So now that they are there, they've closed all the borders. How are we going to get those people that want to get out? My own family members are there. How are we going to get them out? And how long are they going to be trickling down here to the United States? For how many years? Another 20 years? And what would be the bidding process? How are they, who is going to be eligible to come?
1: Uh, Hussein, thanks for the question. Let me see if Anita Kumar is back with us. Anita, are you there? And were you able to hear Hussein's question? I,
7: I was. There's, he's talking about the vetting process. Uh, can you hear me better now? I
1: can, yes.
7: Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. This is really
1: what
6: the issue
7: is about, uh, how the United States is vetting these folks that are coming in. You have a lot of people saying they couldn't possibly be vetted this quickly. And what the United States is saying, the government is saying, is that look, well, many of these people were known to us. We knew they wanted to leave the country. They were already in the process of being vetted, and so that's how we are able to give them a visa and allow them to come to the United States. This is really part of what the the uh, disagreement is really back and forth between uh, most Republicans and, and and the administration.
1: And uh, I understand and. I believe Rena Amiri is still with us. Uh, Rena Amiri, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, thanks for staying on the line. I, I understand that already we are seeing some similar patterns of backlash to the idea of resettlement of Afghan refugees in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about what you are hearing politically, especially recently as an increasingly vocal group of Republicans have been basically opposing resettlement. Yes, unfortunately, uh,
4: that that is the dynamic that that's developing, and there's you know there's certainly a, a political. This is an, a political discussion um, that is meant to strike back against uh, uh, President Biden, um, and and the, the, it's part of sort of a, a longer. Um, uh, opposition that's been building up certainly with the trump administration to the the presence of uh, of uh, outsiders of refugees and a failure to understand that a lot of these people that are being uh, resettled are incredibly skilled people america has become as great as it is because of the presence of uh, people from all over the world, coming that have dreams of democracy, that are incredibly skilled, that are that have resilience. Um, this is bringing people from Afghanistan, particularly. It's all of these people that have been at the forefront of some of the the most dramatic changes in Afghanistan this is going to be an enormous asset to the U.S. and I think that there's a failure to recognize that as uh, you know as the focus has just been sort of looking at them just very generally as as a group in need.
1: And uh, Anita Kumar are you there? While we tried to get Anita on a new line, I think one of the questions that I have is given the fact that a lot of the people that the U.S. is trying to resettle were people who helped the U.S. military, they were U.S. allies, they were aid workers, and so on. I'm wondering um, if that has actually, to some degree, made it harder politically to completely reject uh, the effort to resettle Afghan refugees here should be certainly should you know th- th- these
4: people for the last 20 years have stood by as the staunchest allies of the u.s their families have been threatened their lives have been threatened they have saved american lives over and over again the, the, the way that the U.S. treats these refugees is not only going to reflect sort of morally where the U.S. stands, but it's going to have repercussions beyond just Afghanistan. You know, the U.S. needs allies in every country that it works with. And if the message is that we are going to be fair weather friends and leave you to potential death, that, that's, a, that's a really a, a dark message.
1: And I believe I also heard Anita Kumar there, and I should remind listeners, Anita Kumar is White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, and Rina Amari is a senior fellow at NYU working their Center for International Cooperation, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Anita Kumar, I was talking with Reena Amari Amiri a second ago just about the fact that uh, this time around we've certainly seen backlash against um, settling refugees, for example, I'm thinking about Syria in 2015, and so forth in this country. But I'm wondering if you think the political calculation is a little bit harder as a result of the fact of our involvement in Afghanistan and the people who are coming, many of them having been uh, U.S. allies, people who aided U.S. military. Yeah, I think
8: it's totally different this time. And I'm basing that on conversations I had with some of the folks at refugee organizations who are really uh, involved in helping Afghans settle, resettle, I should say, once they come to the United States. They said the mood is different, that what they're hearing from local officials in some of these, uh, you know, communities across the country is that, yes, we do want to welcome Afghans this time because they helped us. They helped the United States for the last 20 years. And so it feels very different to them than the situation with Syria uh, six years ago.
1: Well, Rhoda asks, do we know yet how many Afghan women are being re- relocated to the U.S.? And how can we help them rebuild their lives?
8: Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Sorry, it's a great ahead, question, hey. and I wish I knew because this is something we've been asking the administration for, and they won't, uh, they haven't given us those specific numbers. But we do know that the U.S. has evacuated more than 115,000 people, and only about uh, 6,000 are Americans. So it's still quite a number of Afghans. Some people who have dual citizenship don't know how many are women, though.
1: And uh, I guess. To what extent, Anita Kumar, do you think that the frantic withdrawal effort has played a role in drumming up backlash against um, Afghan refugee resettlement here? As much as you are saying that it's a harder political calculation and that at the local level there is more support for it, to what extent do you think that that has influenced some of the argument?
8: Yeah, well, it's the same people, you know, that are criticizing President Biden and the administration uh, for how uh, the United States is leaving um, that are now criticizing him for the refugee situation in the United States. So it's some of those conservative Republicans, President President Trump, former President Trump, but also people that are uh, very much aligned with him. And so I think that they, uh, you know, are thinking, well, look, this goes hand in hand. You know, perhaps we wouldn't have had to do this way or uh, evacuate or bring so many people here if we had stayed. And I say we if the United States had stayed in the country uh, and done things a bit differently. So, uh, you know, but there's a huge political Calculation here as well. I mean, obviously, they they the Republicans see this as an issue that they want to use in the midterms. So this is something that they uh, feel like they can use, both the refugee situation, but also the broader uh, exit from Afghanistan.
1: Well, Tamara asked, did the Trump administration make any stipulations within their peace agreement for women's rights, education for women, I assume as well, relocating? Do you know if there was yeah, any of that?
8: A- I do not know. And I don't know if they got into the specific details about uh, women and what the situation would be like uh, there. You know, I, I, it's it's really hard to tell. And this is the thing that the White House keeps pushing back on is what would it have been like if things were different? I mean, we are where we are. And so we just don't know what that would have looked like with President if President Trump had still been around. And I don't know, you know those specific details, if there were any.
1: Well, Anita Kumar, really appreciate having your analysis with us as well with regard to how the resettlement effort is is beginning and continuing as well. I imagine it'll be a long timeline.
8: Yeah, it really will. I mean, for some of these people that are coming to the United States, you know, obviously they're starting their entire lives over. And so they they are going somewhere temporarily, then they'll find some more permanent uh place to live with their children and getting jobs in the United States and has committed to helping them through that entire process along with these refugee organizations. So this is something that we're going to see that, you know, in some of these communities for weeks and months and years to come.
1: Manito Kumar of Politico, I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio. The Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.